Ah, the subject of recalculating. Calculating when you have to make those changes, make those adjustments because things come. Like for instance, when the air is not working really good <laughs> and um, you're, you're taken back you're taking back to the 1960s and everybody's fanning themselves uh, over here. So just make yourself comfortable. Um, if this, I'm probably gonna take my coat off uh, because it is a little, little warm. Is that okay with you guys up here? Thank you, thank you very much uh, over here. We'll, we'll lay it right here. That's gonna cause Michael maybe a problem for the future or so. Oh, someone to come and take my coat. <laughs> this is not, uh, you're, you're fighting my humility, okay? All right. Okay, Whew, I feel better. We'll roll sleeves up in just a moment. You guys hang in. It's just a three-hour message, but it is really good. You're really gonna enjoy this. If you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of John, chapter eight. John, chapter eight. Um, when, when we come into this world, it seems like that we're wired to approach life in certain ways. There's some people that are the glass is half full, and there are some people that the glass is half empty, and there are those even who say the glass is half empty and the water that's in there is dirty, okay? There are some people that approach life very practical, and there are others who approach it as dreamers. There are those who approach life as everything's got to be planned out, and then there are those who say, hey, let's just fly by the seat of our pants. There's different approaches to life. But in today's message, I want us to dr drill down a little bit deeper and look at specifically two particular approaches to life, some different approaches to life. And as you see some of these approaches, you may be in the position to where you say, I would love to recalculate. Because I have been heading in a particular direction. My GPS has had me going in a direction. And Danny, as we look at this passage today, I may identify myself as saying, gosh, that's who I am. But I don't wanna stay that way can I recalculate? And we're going to look in specifically two different individuals or groups, and I think that all of us at one time of our life, and maybe right now in this service, have fallen in those areas. It may be some time to recalculate. So let me read with you. It's found in John chapter eight in the first verse. And it talks about that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but then early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. <clears throat> so what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. From now, go on and sin no more. What you see in this first section of people we're looking at is you've got people that are stone throwers and you got a sand rider. 
We got to determine which one we are. You a stone thrower or a sand rider? The stone throwers. They were the ones at the beginning. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Moses gave us a law. God gave Moses a law, and he had it uh, there. He got it in the Ten Commandments, and, and there were other teachings that, that, that God gave to Moses and the children of Israel as they were there in the wilderness doing their wandering. And then there was a group of people called the scribes that took those laws and made rules and regulations out of them. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Well, they came up with hundreds of explanations as to how you should interpret that. So you got these guys, they were really into all the rules and regulations. And then you've got the Pharisees, which prided themselves on knowing all those laws and keeping all those laws. And when Jesus came, he turned that whole uh, card upside down. And he was talking about it's more of the heart than it is to, to make sure that, that, that you're checking all these boxes, these man-made boxes that these people have come up with. And so they were always looking for ways to trick Jesus, to trap him. And their essence came out in this story because they're stone throwers. And when you think about being a stone thrower, there are some characteristics of that. The very first thing is it's someone who quickly condemns. It says in this passage that they caught this woman, and he said early in the, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And so it leads you to believe that they had seen her getting involved in some adulterous relationship with some man, and they caught her, and they pulled her out of that house or out of that location. And when they did, they saw that Jesus was over here teaching, and they brought this woman before him. Now, they had quickly condemned her. And they just saw her, they grabbed her, they brought her over. They didn't want to hear her story. They didn't know what her life was. They didn't know anything else. They quickly condemned. And they were just blowing up and, and, and showing off and showing this to Jesus. And he says, hey, this woman right here, she's done wrong. A stone thrower is someone who's unmerciful and causes embarrassment. Mercy's not in their, their gift mix. Now, they don't really care. It's right and it's wrong. And if you're gonna be embarrassed, that's okay. I'll be the one to embarrass you. And I want to bring you over here and embarrass you. It says that Jesus was seated and there were a lot of people that gathered around. Rarely do you read in scripture that when Jesus was teaching, there was just one or two people. Crowds would gather. And so while this crowd is gathered around, these Pharisees and scribes have grabbed this woman and they're dragging her through the crowd, coming through, coming through, coming through, coming through, until they get her right there and they stand her right before Jesus. They were embarrassing her. If their motives were pure and they were really concerned for this woman and she had done wrong, they would have just gone to Jesus in private and they said, hey, what, what should be done? But no, they stood her right up there. It's black and white, irregardless of people's feelings. And because she'd done wrong in their eyes, she was calling them out and publicly embarrassed her. My experience with stone throwers is that they quote scripture, but not always correctly. Some of the worst stone throwers are the people that know more scripture and they can throw it out. And they've got their favorite scriptures. And they'll put those scriptures together and they will just attack and they'll bludgeon you over the head with scripture. And they'll say, the Bible says, the Bible says this and they'll be in your face and they'll, they'll beat you with this thing. And oftentimes, it's not even correct. Now they said here to Jesus, they said the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. And you know what? There was, a, there was truth to that. Look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. 
Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The adulteress, she should be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24. If a man's found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. And if there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and he lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. Yes, according to Moses' law, this woman should be stoned. But there was something that was left out. Did you notice in that verse of Scripture? What else? What did they leave out of there? The man. Every woman here said the man, all right? I don't know why the men weren't saying much. Well, I guess it's the guy. Yeah, it's very clear in Scripture. It says both, both, both. So where was the guy? They didn't care about the guy. You see? Hey, this woman's done wrong. I'm going to bring her before Jesus. And so I'm going to spew a lot of Scripture out there. And it's not all going to be correct. I'm throwing stones. And what's interesting is that they were using the Scripture to bludgeon them. But it's interesting because the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, tells us this. Everything that's written in the Scriptures was written to teach us in order that we might have hope through the patience and encouragement which the Scriptures give us. It gives us hope, it gives us patience, and it gives us encouragement. Yes, Scripture points out sin, not to bludgeon us over the head, but to point us to the Savior and then to give us hope and encouragement. I see, a stone thrower is not so much concerned with that. And the last thing is this, and, uh, is that when he came, they uh, looked at Jesus when they brought this woman to him and in verse five, and they said, so what do you say? So what do you say? Falls in your court. Now Jesus is seated here, and they brought her, and she's standing right before him. And all these people have been listening to him. And they said, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And in fact, when you look at the Greek text, the word you is emphatic. You. What do you say? Well, it was a pretty good trap they put together. Because they put Jesus, what seemed to be in a no-win situation. If he said, no, she should not be stoned, then they would come back and say, well, you disagree with God's word. If he didn't came up and he says, yes, she should be stoned, well, they didn't really have the right to stone her because during that day they were under the Roman rule and the Sanhedrin was this ruling group of people there for the Jewish people and they could give a capital offense, they could give a, a, a capital punishment uh, judgment on an individual, but they could not carry it out. The Roman government would have to be the ones that would give you that approval. And so when they're looking to Jesus, and if he said, yes, you do that, then he was telling them to do something that really they didn't have the authority to do. And if he says nothing, he's already got a lynch mob right here with stones in their hands. They're just going to stone her anyway. So the question is, is what would he do? And, and what should he do? And just as a reminder here, stone throwers at times have hidden motives. These were self-righteous men who were full of judgment and they were ready to destroy a woman for their own evil ends. And many times, stone throwers react judgmentally to cover up their own insecurities and their own secret sins and their own failures. 
But here's the fourth point, and that is stone throwers destroy lives and they leave scars. Stone throwers, they destroy lives and they leave scars. With unbridled tongues and harsh judgment, they embarrass people, they destroy relationships, and they cut deeply into the souls of others. And after they've done it, they move on and life goes on with them. But the one who has been hit with all of the stones has the scars for the rest of their lives. And we've seen this over and over again about people who don't want to walk into church because of the way that Christians have handled them in the past and the way they've bludgeoned them over the head with scripture and the way they've constantly guilted them and accused them and embarrassed them at times and they say, I don't wanna go in there. And when you try to talk to them about a savior and you talk about grace, they don't wanna hear that. Stone throwers. Now, as I'm looking out over a congregation, I know a number of us are what we would call veteran Christians. We've been Christians for a, a, a good long time. And a number of us, because we go through Sunday school and we've learned God's word, we have got this incredible gift of knowing his word, but there can come some times where we take that word and out of either anger or whatever, we use it to bludgeon people rather than to point things out and encourage and lift them up. Stone throwers. As you look at this story, you gotta figure out who do you identify with. Are you like the stone throwers? Or could you be like Jesus over here where we, I would just call him a sand rider? And it's interesting because in verse six, it says they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. So if you can imagine, he is sitting and teaching. So while he's sitting and teaching, um, and they have come and they bring this woman before him and they say, what will you do? His first response is not to say anything. He just bends down and starts writing in the sand. And so what was he doing? I love to read commentaries, but people try to figure out what he was doing on there. Uh, some say he was just kind of doodling to um, hesitate in his judgment. And that's one thing that a sand writer does. He hesitates in judgment just to get his thoughts. Some said maybe there was a wide range of emotions that were going through him. Maybe when he looked up and he saw the Pharisees and the scribes who knew so much and missed it so far, it just disappointed him. And then he's looking in the eyes of this poor woman who, yes, what she did was wrong, but the embarrassment and the shame was uncalled for. And so between the hurt he has for her and I guess the anger he's got toward these, he's taking a deep breath to know what he wants to say. Some say he was writing down the sins of the accusers on there. And then I saw another one that I really liked. It sort of combined it. And it said during that day um, in Roman law that before a judge would pronounce a sentence, he would write it down first. And then he would verbally share it. And he would make the pronouncement. And so some believe, and I would lean more towards this, uh, is that he wrote that pronouncement, what he just got ready to tell them. Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And then when he sat back down, he started kind of writing out their sins. And, uh, and he just began to itemize a few things here. And it says that when he did it, it was interesting. I think it's verse 9 that said, they began to walk away. And what order did they walk away? You tell me when you read Scripture. 
from where? Oldest to the youngest. They went from the oldest to the youngest. You know why? Well, because the oldest had more sins and they had more sense. <laughs> because you see, those oldest, they knew the number of sins they had and they'd lived long enough. And they realized, this is wrong. And then it went down to the youngest. And, and in that culture, the older people were so revered that they would look to them for leadership and guidance. And so as it went down, each, each one of the groups uh, just dropped the stones and then they stepped away. You see, um, a, stone, a sand rider is one that hesitates in judgment. Don't just jump into it. Catch your breath, all right? And then there comes to the part of the compassion. Because all of a sudden, Jesus then stands up. Now he's face to face with this woman. And he says, woman. And, and that's a, a term of endearment. It's the exact same word that he said when he was hanging on the cross. He looked down to his mother and he called her woman. And, and he asked her, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And, and she's looking around and this group, this band of men, they have left. And she's saying, well, you know, they've all gone. And this is where the sand rider kicks into forgiveness. Because he says, well, neither do I condemn you. And how interesting is that, is that the one man there who could truly condemn her was the one man who didn't. And he says, I don't condemn you either. And there was this forgiveness that, that was coming from him. And some people have said that, that um, the thing about Jesus writing in the sand, uh, you know, her pronouncement of judgment is that when the sand, when the wind blows, it blows the sand away, just as forgiveness sort of blows things away and that we need to forgive and not hold on to it and we need to release the bitterness from that. And so there was forgiveness. There was forgiveness for her, for her to understand the miracle of God. But it didn't end there. And it would be, and so many people, when they talk about this, they said, neither do I condemn you. But at the end, he says, go and sin no more. He's candid about the seriousness of sin. Candid about the seriousness of sin. You cannot come over here and say, sand riders are people that uphold the word of God, and the sand riders are over, the stone throwers are the ones that uphold the word of God, and sand riders are the ones that, that just say, hey, just live like, like you want to. Not at all. The sand rider is the one that is very candid about the seriousness of God. It's an imperative statement, and he says, go and sin no more. Listen, you know what got you into this? Don't do it again. Get out of that lifestyle. Go do something else. Live for a higher purpose. And we're gonna talk about that in just a moment. And so you've got here the stone thrower and then over here the sand rider. He accepted that her charges were true, but his verdict was not a simple acquittal. The verdict, in fact, was a strict charge for her to live from this point very differently to sin no more. He acknowledges her sin, but he calls for mercy, and he gives her this life of forgiveness. A stone thrower and a sand rider. Now, let's talk about recalculating. Probably most of us as believers have at times shifted into stone throwing mode. So if you're in that mode, how do you recalculate? 
How do you go from a stone thrower to a sand rider to where you're still serious about what sin is, but yet you're not so quick to judge people, not to condemn them, not to embarrass them, not to show any mercy? How can you do that? Well, I'd like for you to turn a little bit to your left to the book of Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about really this same subject. And he's talking about judging others. And he starts in verse three of chapter seven, and he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, how can you come over here and look at someone and find something in their life that is so small and I'm going to come after you when I've got this big log sticking out of my eye? And and, and he uses all this hyperbole for people to see and to understand that, whoa, before we judge others, we need to take a look at our own life. And he says, once you remove that plank or that log from your eye, then you'll see clearly how to remove the speck of sawdust from your brother's eye. And it's not like you'll see it more clearly. The issue in, in seeing the, the uh, sawdust, the, the spirit of this, of this uh, passage is that your attitude would be different and you'll be in a position to remove that. And so this is, this is some steps to recalculate. How do I recalculate from going from a stone thrower to a sand rider? The first thing is you need to determine the root sin in the actions being judged. Just write this down, it's going to make sense. Determine the root sin in the actions being judged. You see somebody that is doing something that you know is wrong, and it may be something habitual in their lives, it may be something that's just happened, and your first thought is, I need to confront them. I need to confront them on this. Before I jump into stone thrower mode, before I quickly condemn them, before I embarrass them, and before I pass too quick a judgment, number one thing is I need to look inward. And as I'm looking inward, I need to, number one, take whatever it is they're doing and break it down. What is the root sin in the action being judged? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it a lack of love? Is it greed? What is the root of that? You got that? Once you've done that, then number two is you look for that same root in your own life. Look for that same root in your own life. And say, God, I wanna do some introspection, and man, this guy is so prideful, and I need to point that out. I need to stop and say, God, what, is it, what in my life is prideful? What, what, what do I need to see on that? I read a statement from someone who says, the fault is not our inability to see ourselves, but our unwillingness to see ourselves. It's not the inability, it's the unwillingness, because we don't want to take that same look at ourselves. But Lord, the thing that, that I'm so upset <clears throat> at what this person's doing, I need to look in, look in my own life and see is it there. Then number three is this, ask forgiveness and for God to remove the plank from your eye. You know, ask forgiveness and ask for God to remove that plank from your eye and say, God, just go and take this from me. And once God has done that, and then you can begin to see things clearly through his eyes, then you humbly and gently remove the sawdust from someone else's eye. 
That's when you humbly and gently approach them and you remove that sawdust from their eye. You say, should, should we do this? Galatians 6.1 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You need to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, when we see brothers or sisters that are doing things that are wrong, and before we jump into judgment and throw in stones, we need to do the introspection, lose the self-righteousness, and then approach them. And when we approach them, it says, I love the fact that it's sawdust in someone's eye. It's sawdust in an eye. Now, is there any more part of your body that is more delicate than the eye? If somebody was over here saying, you know, like, hey, I got, you know, I got, got something, you know, stuck right, right over here, you know, in my eye. I've got, I got something here. Uh, can, you, can you help me with that? Well, you know, when you've got something in your eye, like Jimmy over here, if you've got something in your eye, and if I go over here, oh, I don't think it's anything real bad. Jimmy, come on, let me pull your eye up. Let me get that out of your eye. Your first response is stay away, okay? You're going to close up. And if you're coming in hard on somebody's eye with your finger, they're going to close that thing down. And so it says you need to be gentle. And the only way you can be gentle is if I've gotten the self-righteousness out of the way and I've got my judgmental spirit put aside and I can come to you and humbly and gently say, hey, let me tell you, this is what I'm seeing is going on in your life. And I just, man, I love you and I appreciate you, but I just want to point this out because it's taking you in a different direction. It's taking you away from what God's got for you. It's, it's going opposite of what God's word has to say. And, and I just want to sit down and talk to you about that. And when you approach somebody gently like that, they will be more open to be able to take that counsel and then take whatever step is needed. To get that sawdust out of the eye, humble, sympathetic, conscious of our own sins and without condemnation. And so, recalculate. Maybe there's some of you here who said, man, I got that tendency. I need to do some recalculating. Keep in mind these four points, and let's take a look at ourselves first. But you see, that, that kind of covers those scribes and Pharisees, and you see what Jesus was doing as the uh, writing in the sand. But what about that woman? What about that woman that was caught in adultery? You see, for that woman, she is clothed in shame and guilt. Now, what she was doing was wrong. And then when she was thrown before everyone else and the shame just began to be magnified and the guilt was magnified and the embarrassment. And there may be some of you here today, as you walked into this service, you even asked yourself, why did I, I walk in here? And then when the air wasn't working, you said, I knew that I wasn't supposed to be here, okay? It's me that caused the air, which now we've got it working a little bit better so you can calm down. But, you know, there's some people that walk in, and we see this every Sunday, of people that walk in, and, and their life, there's a lot of shame, there's guilt, and they said, for some reason, God's apparently directed me here, or something directed me here, and so what is there for me? And when I started this message in those first few verses, that's the way you felt, is that when you come in this service, you were going to be bludgeoned, and someone's going to be hitting you over the head with the Bible, and, and shame you, and guilt you. 
But you see, that's not where it needs to be. And so when you came in with, with, with this shame and this guilt, I'd like for you to recalculate your life and go from shame to surrender. And this is what Jesus was asking this woman. This is what he was encouraging her to do, is to take that shame that you have and go to surrender. Because he told her to go and to sin no more. Now, there's one thing for me to sit there and look at you and say, go and sin no more. The Bible says that there's nothing good inside of us. And that the things that we want to do, if we want to, to not sin, we are so driven to sin because we cannot do it in our own power. And it says in Romans chapter eight that God gives us the Holy Spirit and as he gives us this Holy Spirit to live in our life, he then guides us and directs us and he empowers us and gives us the strength to live the life that God has called us to live. He empowers us not to go in that direction that we have been living in. And when Jesus says, go and sin no more, he says, you need to take that shame of yours and change that to surrender and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And if you would only follow Christ and surrender your life to him, it would make a world of difference. And when you do, there's two things that you will see. Number one is satisfaction. Satisfaction. Now, when you look at the word satisfaction, it really has two different meanings. One is a legal term, a payment of sin's debt. It satisfied the debt. And you'll see that sometimes. Yes, you've satisfied your debt. It's canceled. But see, what Jesus did was when he saw her shame, her hurt, her guilt, he knew that in a short while, he was taking her shame, her guilt on his shoulders, and he was going to the cross. And what Jesus did was he went to the cross and was crucified for our sins, the sins of all mankind. The sins of this woman that was standing before him and the sins of us that are sitting right here at Shades Mountain Baptist in 2017. He took all of our sins and he took all of her sins and he placed them on his shoulders and he died on the cross and he paid the penalty. And when he died, it satisfied that debt. It was paid in full. And so whenever she would turn from that shame to surrender, she would have a satisfaction to know that her sins have been forgiven and she has accepted the one who has paid the penalty for her sins. And it changes her life. And that's the second part of satisfaction. And that means purpose, meaning, and joy in life. I mean, all of a sudden now, this life has completely changed because what Jesus did was he took her brokenness and he makes her whole. He begins to carry her through life, bearing her burdens and bearing her shame. <clears throat> and whenever there's things that are done wrong, he says, I'm bearing your burdens, I'm bearing your shame. I've done this for you, I've died for you. Live for me. Have meaning in your life, have a joy in your life, have a purpose in your life. Go and sin no more. You don't need to be involved in that lifestyle anymore. Go and sin no more. Surrender to Christ and live that life for him. Will you still mess up? Yes, you'll still mess up, but you have an advocate, one who goes to the Father and says, I've paid that penalty for that sin and ask for forgiveness and he will forgive you of that sin, cleanse you from all, all unrighteousness and then pick your feet back up and put them on solid ground and say, let's continue this journey together. At all times, 
He's carrying you through. At all times, he is there with you. And so even when you sit there and say, I've, I've had these highs and lows in my Christian life, at all times, he is there bearing your burden, bearing your shame, and carrying it all along the way. He's carrying you all the time. You can recalculate your life. You can recalculate and go from shame to surrender. And when you go from shame to surrender, it will then go to satisfaction of knowing that your sins have been satisfied, the debt has been paid, and then the satisfaction of a life that I can live through the power of Christ, which would then lead you to another S, and that is that you shout your praise to Jesus. <laughs> you shout your praise to Jesus. You know, those who've been forgiven the most are the ones that shout their praises the loudest. You ever notice that? You ever gone and heard people give testimonies of, of those that have just been beaten up in life? And then when they stand up and they share their testimony, they don't give God a golf clap. It's a raucous praise. It's hands held high. It's a hallelujah because I know what it's like to be sinful. I know what it's like to be separated from God. And then all of a sudden, he took me up and he embraced me. And she shouts her praise to God and says, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It can happen to you today. You can go all the way from shame to surrender and then from there experience that satisfaction and then come out shouting praise to Jesus for what he's done for your life. Let's recalculate, okay? Let's recalculate and to know that at all times he will carry you through. At all times he is there for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the assurance of Scripture. And I thank you for your son, Jesus. And that he was a sand rider, not a stone thrower. Because when I came to him, even as a young boy, knowing of my sins, you didn't throw stones, but you welcomed me in. And through the grace that you gave, salvation was there. And I pray for each person here, whichever camp that they fall into, that you would help them to see that there is hope for recalculating their life. And especially for those, Father, that are just caught and burdened in shame and in guilt, to know that there is forgiveness and that their sins have been paid for through Jesus Christ. And may they experience that satisfaction. And then, Father, may they be able to shout praises to your name. Because during all times, you are there with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.